Today's episode of the Gwinnett Podcast is brought to you by Duluth Travel Incorporated, a veteran-owned company. Look, making a connection, building relationships, closing deals, some things are just better in person, and there's no replacement for face-to-face business meetings. A travel advisor at Duluth Travel can help you save time, money, and stress. You focus on business, and they will do the rest. Call your travel advisor today at 770-813-9144. That's 770 770- 813-9144 or visit DuluthTravel.com. Now back to the show. Welcome to Gwinnett Magazine Studios in beautiful historic downtown Buford, Georgia. You're listening to the Gwinnett Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back. I'm Nate McGill, one of the hosts. Today on the show, I'm talking to a local legend here in Gwinnett. That happens to be one of my mentors, Clyde L. Strickland. Clyde is the founder of Metro Waterproofing, one of the most successful companies in the Southeast, and one of the most philanthropic towards Gwinnett County. The Stricklands have made many contributions over the years to make Gwinnett great, including the Strickland Heart Center at Northside Hospital, just to name one among countless others. But how did it all happen? How does a man with a dream go from a tobacco farm in North Carolina to creating a multi-million dollar company that's more successful with every year they do business? Over 40 years now. Well, we sat down with Mr. Strickland himself to hear the full story. A story so engaging that we talked for nearly three hours. So we're going to break this one up into several episodes for you. Here is part one of Clyde's story from sharecropping to metro waterproofing. Let's jump right in. I want to go all the way back to the beginning and talk about what was life growing up like in the house of a sharecropper as a farmer. We, we would get up every morning at, uh, when I was six years old. That's when I first started having memories of what it was really about. Mm. Uh, my mama made me some uh, sugar cookies for my sixth birthday. And uh, my daddy told me that night, said, in the morning, you're getting old enough to get up and start helping with the farm. Well, I didn't know he was talking to me. And so the next morning when he said, roll out, I just snuggled up and Uh-oh. he put that uh, razor strap in that bed. Ooh. And so uh, I started at six, five o'clock in the morning when I was six years old, feeding hogs, feeding mules, horses, milking cows, uh, doing the chores that you had to do on a farm. Right. And that went right on. By the time I was uh, seven or eight years old, I was plowing a mule right out in the fields with uh, with nobody out there. I'd daddy just take you out and put you in a big old 50 or 60 acre field and leave you there half a day and then come back at lunchtime. And and so it was just work and learn and honor and principles. And uh, I can remember the only, we had two pictures in our house. We had one frame of one famed uncle, mm-hmm. and I don't even know who his name now, but, uh, and we have one, uh, the Ten Commandments in a little black frame, and wow. it hung on the wall. That was the only two pictures we had in the house. Wow. And so it was, uh, it was a humble, humble beginning, but I tell you, it was good because you had to work hard, and you would talk honor, you would talk principle, you would talk patriotism, you would talk the vote, mm-hmm. and... You didn't have no clothes. You didn't have no shoes. You got 
my daddy was the second generation off the reservation. Uh, and so he was cruel man, but he was an honorable man. Mm. And so he would beat you. When he said yes, it mean yes, and it didn't mean talk back. He said no, it meant no, he meant go. Mm. And so that's kind of the way it was. It was it was tough, but it was good. We had uh, we didn't have clothes or shoes, but we had plenty to eat. Mm. And so I was always thankful for that. And and we thought we was good because we didn't know no better. We was I spent the first uh, seventeen years of my life in about a five mile circle. There you go. And so you really didn't know what was going on in the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't get a TV until 1954, and that was the year before I left home. So when you when you left home, can I tell the story of like what you think led to that? What was the first time when you were on the farm that you felt like inspired that there was more out there to for Clyde Strickland? Well, I guess I had got to that point. I was about 16 and a half, and uh, it was one morning I can remember. It was about this time of year. Might have been uh, might have been in September. And uh, we were grading tobacco. We put in all the tobacco, and we were grading tobacco. And you graded tobacco on a grading bench, and you had about five different colors. And mm. so I I laid a leaf in there, and my dad said, that's not the right color. And I said, well, it looks good to me. Well, he didn't say nothing else. He slapped me over the tobacco oh, bench. Oh, no. Oh, no. And so I, I told him that day because I said, you ever hit me again, I'll kill you. Hmm. And uh, he said, well, you better leave. Well, he didn't know I was going to leave, but I walked up and got my clothes, and I had $3. I had all my clothes in one hand, and I walked up the road and thumbed down to Greenville, North Carolina, where my brother lived. Mm. That was about 35 miles from where we lived, and, and that was the beginning of my being on myself and right. and being out in the world at 16 and a half years old and Right. That's a venture too. Yeah. I, I, so when, um, I want to talk about the, the, the man with the black Lincoln. Was that before you left that you saw the, the and that was, that was actually the whole time he actually had a Cadillac. Okay. Uh, All right. Uh, Tell me about that story. Cause you know, back in the old days, if you remember the old movies and all the, 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 the guy that owned the farms mm-hmm. and the landowner, they always had a black Cadillac. Mm. And when they would come out, they would come and, and uh, like my daddy, he respected uh, Mr. Jordan, and uh, he respected him, and I respected him. And uh, actually, he wanted to adopt me one time. That was one of my big mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, daddy would always pick the finest watermelons and the finest tomatoes and corn, and and so he would come out and uh, and. When Daddy would barbecue pigs, and oh, we'd, wow. we'd have to go out and chop all that wood and drag it up and build the pits, and but he would always get to find his meat, and we'd have to gnaw the bones. So when when Mister Jordan was on was coming, your dad went all out for him like, every every time. He sent his honor up. Yep, that's it, the way it was. That's amazing. That's, that is, uh, and so you probably saw that in your life, and that respect that your daddy was given. Him that did something in you, didn't it? Well, it taught me. It taught me a lot of things. He taught me. It taught me to respect uh, people. Mm-hmm. And my dad respected people. And I could uh, see that. He said, mm-hmm. "You respect your elders. You respect the authority above you. You respect the policeman. You respect. You just respect people in higher places." That's a good lesson for life, right there. Now you're out. You're 16. You're on your own. 
And um, and so where is the first job that you take? Well, I went uh, I went down to my brothers and uh, being a person that had always been taught to make your own, I got a lawnmower and went out and started cutting grass. For 50, really, that 50. was the first thing. Okay. Well, well, that was what I did to kind of pay back because uh-huh. I didn't want to stay in his house and not give him something. Right. And so his wife, uh, his name, her name was Joyce, and they'd work all night, and she would, she would take me all day, and three or four hours a day we'd go ride and. I'd try to find a job. Back then, you didn't have McDonald's. You didn't have these all these fast foods, so mm-hmm. they want nobody looking for a 16-year-old to go to work. And so I was just begging somebody, please give me a job. And so at about the third week, we stopped at this place called a Silo Restaurant. Mm. And it was one of the biggest restaurants. It, it was in the top 10 in North Carolina at that time. Wow. And so they had a little side window walk-up. So I walked up, and the, and the girl was there. I told her I need a job and wanted to see the manager, the owner, and she said, we don't need nobody. Hmm. I said, well, I need to see the owner, and he happened to walk up, and this guy was Wilbur Hardy. Oh, okay, Wilbur and, Hardy, okay. And he was uh, eventually became the founder of Hardy Hamburgers. Well, I think I've heard of that. And uh, so he looked down, and he said, I told him, who I was and what I wanted. And he said, well, I don't need anybody but give you a telephone number. I said, well, I don't have a telephone number. <laughs> and uh, think about this now. You're talking to Wilbur Hardy. Um, um, uh, right. He was a millionaire back then. Yeah. And uh, and you're talking to him, and you're telling him you don't have a telephone number, but you want a job. Uh-huh. And so he said, well, where do you live? I said, well, I told him where I was staying. And he said, I know where that is. He said, if I need somebody, I'll come and get you. So I left and went on thinking I wouldn't ever see him anymore. And uh-huh. I got home, I got lawnmower, started cutting the grass, cut my brother's grass, and this pink Lincoln pulled up in the driveway. Mm. And there was Mr. Hardy. And he said, just the way you talked and walked, mm. I decided I'd come and give you a job. He said, when can you go to work? And we ain't talking about no money, we ain't talking about nothing. And mm-hmm. I said, when do you want me? He said, five o'clock in the morning. Well, I didn't have no car, no way to get there. So I got up at 2 o'clock. Wow. I walked six miles. Mm. But back then, after people seen you side of the road in the mornings or any time, they'd stop and pick you up. Yeah. It okay. was kind of a honor thing back in the, right. in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And so after the second morning I walked, uh, this guy would come by and pick me up and, and drop me off. So Right. When he was on his way to work. And he was on his way somewhere yeah. to work. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so after that, two weeks, uh I went to work 12 hours a day, six days a week for $35 a week. Wow. And uh, two weeks later, uh, I bought my first car, a 1950 Studebaker for $150. There you go. uh, $10 down and $5 a week. Mm. And I started riding. And we bought them 50-cent tires and used (laughs) tires. And and, uh, Mr. Hardy walked back there. This guy that was a head guy at uh, Silo Restaurant, he cussed and raised sand, just like my daddy. He was just like my daddy. Uh-oh. And so um, that was about the second second week. I just got tired of it, so I, I walked back there in the back and just sat down and started peeling potatoes or something. I don't know what I was doing, but Mr. Hardy walked back there and said, what you doing, Clyde? I said, well, I can't take this guy. He just like my daddy, and I said I can't I can't work for people cussing you and and mm-hmm. all all the time. And he said, "You think you can do that job?" Oh, 
I said, with your help? He went and fired that guy and put me over 16 people. I'm Think about this. I'm not even 17 years old. Mm. And so he taught me how to cut meat, how to cook the best steak in the world, how to cook the best chickens, fish, and how to become a real good chef. Mm. And so he put me over the whole kitchen and gave me a $10 a week raise. I was on cloud nine. Man. And he went on, and this is the founder of Hardee's that we're talking about. And he saw something in you at a very early age where he was like, this kid's going to show up and keep showing up and keep showing up. And I think that, you know, he probably already kind of knew about that guy that was running the place and had had his, you know, thoughts about it as a leader and saw the potential in you and saw your leadership abilities. Even at a young age, he knew. Well, in that first two weeks, I found a guy, one of the old employees was stealing country ham and he would, he would, he would put it inside of his coat. And so I, I went and, I told him first mm. not to do it because being in the military, I was a tough guy back then, and right. I'd go right to you and approach you and mm-hmm. and try to get you to do what's right. Mm-hmm. Well, he still kept stealing that ham, so I turned him into <laughs> Mr. Hardy. And uh, I think that that honesty and that hard work, just being there every day 15 or 20 minutes early and staying late every night, being sure that everything was perfect, mm-hmm. that— uh, He's seen something in me. Now, you were 19 when you joined the Army, correct? 19. And, and tell me a little bit about that. How, what, how did that happen? Well, we were, I didn't know it, but I'd give my the, my sister-in-law's brother a job. Well, he wanted my job. Mm. And so we all would get off three hours in the afternoon from two to five, and we'd go off and chase girls and just have fun uh, whatever young people do it. Uh, riding that Studebaker around. Yeah, riding that Studebaker. <laughs> <laughs> and so we would, uh, we'd go out. And so one day we decided we would uh, go join the Air Force. We were going to fly into the wild blue yard. Oh, my goodness. And, yeah. And so we go into the Air Force recruiters. Well, neither one of us had a high school education, so they said, well, you can't go in the Air Force. Mm. Said, go down to the Navy. I said, no, I don't want to go to the Navy. I've, I've been in the ocean. Them, they got big fish out there to eat you. <laughs> and so went down to the Army. And I was the only one that joined. And uh, it uh, about six months later, I went into the military, and uh, that was my best day. Mm. Now, in the military, uh, tell me about what you learned there. I know it formed a lot of your character and 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 also gave you that importance for education that you've had over the years. Well, the first thing I learned that I learned in the, uh, probably my second eight weeks of training when I was taking pre-airborne training, uh, the, I had to take hand-to-hand combat. Mm. And I'd always been a guy that would fight to the finish. My daddy says if you don't keep beating them until they get up, but I learned to respect people, and I learned to mm-hmm. that it didn't matter if you was in war or battle or what you were in, that, that hand-to-hand combat, I think everybody should de- take defensive training because it gives you a mental mindset that you don't have to kill people. Mm-hmm. You just make them say uncle, mm-hmm. and then you reach down, shake their hand, and pat them on the back and say, now let's go, let's go do our job, whatever we got to do. That's right. And so it taught me. I learned patriotism. I, I still cry mm-hmm. when they play the national anthem. Yes, sir. And uh, I learned that patriotism. 
And uh, but I couldn't even. Uh, I was so uneducated. I probably had about a fifth grade education, mm. even though I went three months into tenth grade. And so I couldn't even sign a vehicle out of the motor pool. Nobody never knew this though. Nobody in the military never knew how uneducated I was because I was always smart. Mm-hmm. And so I'd get a prerequisition, and I'd just copy it. And mm-hmm. so then one day I realized you got to get some more education. <laughs> so I got through my training, got to Germany, and I started uh, back to school and got my GED in Germany. And I started taking all these advanced leadership. I, I tell people all today, like my grandchildren, um, my one of my grandsons, he's the vice president of the Republican Party in Oconee High Schools. Mm. And I teach them about patriotism, and I teach them about being leaders and that you got to step out and be the president of your class or the vice president or the secretary. You got to do something in the leadership role mm-hmm. if you're going to achieve things in life. Yeah. And it starts off, it doesn't, you know, people get. Uh, people get discouraged because they feel like maybe they don't know it all or they don't have the education that they need. And, and oh, I don't have that kind of degree. And one of the reasons I love working with David upstairs is because he has this saying that his daddy taught him, which was RTB, which means read the book, which means like when you don't know how to do it, go back and read uh, the book. Read the manual. You know, like you were saying, you know, you would you would look at what they were doing and then you would emulate it and then you would be confident in it, and then you would lead lead the other people when you were in Germany. So you were there for two and a half years, mm-hmm. and then you come back from Germany, and you're you're at home. I think you go to work for a textile mill, and you, this is the important thing. You meet Miss Sandra. Amen. So tell me that story. I love a good love story. Now. Actually, now, this was the <laughs> this is the best love story in the world because All right. uh, I had uh, you know you don't get a lot of fruit. And stuff in the military, most especially in Germany, if you got an apple or an orange every once in a while, that, treat. that yeah. was a treat. Yeah. And so here we are in the spring. You got strawberries, you got Ooh. peaches, you mm-hmm. got pretty tomatoes. I mean, you got everything. Mm-hmm. And then you got this pretty redheaded woman, Uh-oh. a girl. And so I would pull up, and I always kept my cars. Uh, they were so shiny that you could shave in them. I'd, I'd wax them every <laughs> week, and so. When I'd stop, I'd see her eyes following me down the road. And so I, after about the third time, I stopped. Mm-hmm. And I can remember the first thing I ever said to her to this day. I said, well, you know the price of eggs in China? <laughs> and that blowed her completely away because she didn't know what in the world that was. <laughs> you just came from left field. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> asked her something no one ever asked her before. <laughs> well, how much are the eggs in China, Clyde? Oh. Uh, about a penny a dozen. <laughs> <laughs> what did she say? Oh, uh, she just got. She just laughed and she oh, said no, funny. and she wouldn't date me. She she wouldn't date me, but her I, mother. I know what that feels like, really. Yeah, her mother said, "Now that's a, a good looking guy," and I was good looking back then. I mean, mm-hmm. I was still good looking, Clyde. Lean, slim. I was a lean fighting machine, and uh, so. And I went to work every day. I worked most time. I'd work twelve hours a day in the textile mill, mm-hmm. and uh, and so her mother said, "You need to date him. He's a nice guy." And uh, so about three years before that, her godmother had got her. She was a Baptist and got her to start to the Episcopal Church. And so the only way Sandra would date me is if I went to church with her. Oh, okay. So we went to the Episcopal Church, and I'd never been in an Episcopal Church in my life. And uh, 
This is the oldest Episcopal church in North Carolina. It's uh, called Calvary Parish. Mm. It sits on a whole block, and it's right in the middle of a cemetery. And to keep it, it's everything so immaculate. It's just, it's like when you walk in, it's like being in heaven. You, mm. It's so peaceful. And so God planned all this, and uh, and so we'd go to church, and then the first date we went to see uh, John Wayne and the paratroopers. Oh, okay. And yeah. so because me and being an old soldier, I, That's love a good that, one. I, yeah. I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so we've always loved movies, and yeah. so she ended, I ended up starting to the— uh, well, actually, she was teaching the Ten Commandments and singing in the choir, and so I ended up— Become an Episcopalian. There you go. And so God had a plan mm-hmm. for Sandra and I. And so she thought I was the white knight that God had sent to save her and to get her. And I knew she was the angel the first day I ever seen her mm. that God had sent me. And because uh, she was so pure and always has been 58 years later. Mm. Um, and I know she was the angel that he sent to save me. Mm. Well, there you were. You've, you found the love of your life. You're working in manufacturing in a textile mill. Um, and what was Sandra doing at that time? Well, she was going to high school. She was playing mm-hmm. in the band, and she had uh, two scholarships to East Carolina College. And Okay. And so on Christmas, six months later, I asked her to marry me. And uh, her godmother thought she'd go crazy <laughs> and give up them scholarships oh, to marry me. And mm-hmm. so... She actually went to work in the textile wheel with me because she didn't drive. Okay. And I thought that was right. I thought that you guys both had worked in manufacturing back then. Yeah, she worked about three months. And, uh, okay. From the time we got married, we got married in uh, June the 29th in 63. Okay. And from the time we got married, I was working four jobs. Mm. I'd actually work in a textile mill. Then I would go out and fold pasteboard from two factories, and I'd fold it up and piled it in a pile at, at our house, and and then on Friday, I'd drive it all the way to Roanoke Rapids and sell it, mm. and then I'd haul dirt. I'd load dirt with a shovel, unload it with a shovel, and, and spread it for $5 a load. And some days, I'd haul four loads before I went to work. And so on you- Saturday morning, I'd get up and go get 31 bushel sweet potato. Don't never ask me why I got 31 bushels, because that's just all I could get on the truck. And so <laughs> I would take them and put a peck in each hand and run from door to door and sell 31 bushel sweet potatoes. I never took no more than five hours. So I worked four jobs, and so I was making more money than the mayor. Mm. Now, you, so you entrepreneur like that was a word that nobody really said back then is just that you were thinking about every single way that that you could make money and when you saw an opportunity you went honest. after it make money honest right mm-hmm. and uh sander daddy he you know he had this little produce stand mm-hmm. and so one day he said clyde said you need to run up y'all and get some of them little green butter beans and so uh, down to Edenton, North Carolina. So mm-hmm. I got up about 2 o'clock in the morning. Didn't go to bed at 12. So I got up at 2, drove down to Edenton, got 125 bushels of butter beans, and drove to Raleigh, North Carolina. Made $125 before lunch. Wow, you're delivering it. And so wild, then yeah. I started getting a load of butter beans every day. I quit the textile business. There you go. And that was the 
that was the end of the textile. And so a little while later, he, he said, if we had a big truck, we could really make some money. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't plant a seed in Clyde's mind. <laughs> so I, I go down, I buy the biggest truck Chevrolet makes. Oh, there you go. So, so here I come. That's right. And uh, we built a beautiful produce body on it. And so off we went into produce business. And before long, we had two trucks. And mm-hmm. so went from $2,500 a year to 36000 mm. in one year. Mm. So that was the beginning. I knew that there was money out there. That we just had to turn rocks over to find it. Amen. That's awesome. And so that was how I got into the first real business that I mm-hmm. ever was in, was in hauling produce. We pulled it from Immokalee, Florida, to Columbia, South Carolina, from uh, all up to Raleigh, all the way back up to Pennsylvania. And You know, that's something that we have in common that I never knew we had in common. Is that my very first? My first job. It wasn't your first job, but my first job was a produce, and I uh, worked for Chadwick. Uh, Greg Chadwick and Gary Chadwick went to high school with me, and their dad ran Chadwick's Produce on the corner of Brazelton Highway and Highway Twenty. I can't tell you how many years. It's still there. Forty years, forty, fifty years how business, about that? and their kids run it now. But they they had one in Decula. They had one in uh, Lawrenceville. And they made the best boiled peanuts you ever had in your Ooh, life, still I to this it. day. But uh, we would go there, and it started off selling Christmas trees and pumpkins and, and produce. But you'd have to drive the truck down. You have to pick up a load. You have to bring it back. You have to sell it. You have to flip it. You have to go back, get you another load. That's it. That's what we did. Yep. And so I, I know that business. That was my first business. And then, you know, that also changed. Uh, that was the business that I got out of when I found uh, TV. So I, I went down to the local TV station and I bought 30 minutes of airtime for 60 bucks and started selling commercials because I didn't want to cut yards or do anything else. So <laughs> that's what I, that's what I did. That cutting yard gets sweaty. You know, I figured out a way to make money in high school. I was probably 16, 17 years old when I started that TV show. But then once you did came out of produce, you found waterproofing. Tell well, me. it was a crazy thing. Our first daughter, Teresa, mm-hmm. her only daughter, Okay. Was born and uh, and so I realized that talking to Sander and me and her both realized you can't raise a ch- uh, child spending uh, twenty three hours a day in a bouncing up down the road in a truck. That's very true. Yes, sir. And they wrote this song about me run the wheels off of a Greyhound bus. They, that was <laughs> I run the wheels off of them produce trucks. Mm-hmm. And so I went uh, from there. I took a job driving a milk truck in Morganton, North Carolina, for $100 a week. Mm. Well, we were spending more money than that on ice cream. And so I knew something happened. And my brother, mm-hmm. he worked for Holbrook Waterproofing out of Charlotte. And so one day, Mr. Holbrook came by, uh, and he said, just the way your family works and y'all's work ethics, I'll give you 50 cent an hour more. And at that time, I done went over and went to work for General Electric and had my first union job, I didn't know that God was planning me and preparing me to mm. move to Georgia. Yeah. And so I quit, and we moved to Charlotte, and I went into waterproofing at $2 and a half an hour and started into waterproofing. And the first two weeks I was into waterproofing, I started changing the waterproofing industry. Mm-hmm. Back then, people picked up their labors, and they'd go downtown Charlotte, and 
they'd pick up the laborers. And, well, I'd been in the military in the textile business. Nobody picked up nobody. So I said, we're doing something wrong here. Mm-hmm. And so the boss said, well, you can't change it. I've been trying. I said, you give it to me. I can change it. So I just told them, Monday morning, y'all going to show up for work. And the mm-hmm. ones that don't ain't going to work. And so after a couple of weeks, we'd had to replace a couple of people, but everybody was showing up. And and I started revolutionizing the waterproofing business. And uh, yeah. actually, sir, I worked with uh, companies like GE and Dow Chemical and Trimco, the large manufacturers of caulking compound, mm-hmm. and helped them change their formulas and 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 change the whole waterproofing industry. The the insight and that that instinct that you had of looking for opportunities from business to business, once you found waterproofing, now you're looking at the opportunities under waterproofing. So you're in waterproofing, and now Clyde, you are finding oh the you're innovating inside of that world, and I think you blossom right there. I did, you know, because you found your niche, you found your area, and then. You started taking big chances and big opportunities within that. Well, and, within two weeks, uh, he made me foreman. Mm. Three months, I made top pay. Didn't he know how to spell caulking? <laughs> I thought caulking would spell C-A-L-K-I-N-G, and it had a U in it. Yeah. And I didn't even know how to spell caulking. That is funny. But I knew how to manage people, and I knew how to tell time. That's right. And it said work eight hours. Uh, you work eight hours, you get eight hours pay. And so that's what I loved to enforce was the rules and regulations and policies. And uh, so that was the beginning of uh, my waterproofing experience. And then mm. seven, seven months later, on October the 23rd, 1966, I took a little trip. And I fell seven floors. Oh, my goodness. Off of Duke Hospital. And they said I'd never walk again, never work again. I had... Uh, Mm. Broke my, uh, crushed my spine, had 276 stitches in my face, five teeth knocked out. My right arm was completely demolished. Mm. And one of my knees, I could stick my knee, my finger in a hole in my knee. And, uh, but. It's a bad, bad fall. Most people don't live from a fall like that. Well, I found out later that 90% of people that fall 40 feet die. Oh, my goodness. And the guy that was with me, he he died. And uh, that was a mental tragedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, seven days later, they said I'd be in the hospital three or four months. Seven days later, they rolled me to the door. I said, I ain't, I ain't getting in that riding back to Charlotte in an ambulance. Mm-hmm. And so they drove up and... Uh, I lay in the back of a 98 Oldsmobile and uh, with my head on a pillar, but I walked three steps to get in it. And my daughter, Teresa, by that time, she was uh, about one year old. And so she loved ice cream. And so we lived in an apartment, mm. but down the, about down the hill was a little ice cream 7-Eleven store, and they sold dip ice cream. So I'd go down every day and get her ice cream comb. And I believe just that walking back and forth, by the time I get back, it'd be running down my hand. But me and her got a bond that was unbelievable. Mm. And so five weeks later, the, I told my boss, well, we actually got the first 
electric scaffold that was ever brought in the southeast. Mm. Now, back when I fell, you didn't have safety lines. Right. You didn't have nothing. And so we got the first uh, electric scaffold. And so they couldn't rig it because they forgot to read the manual. Mm. And so they called Clyde, and they come pick me up. Well, I'm walking with a walking stick. I've got a brace. I can't even tie my shoes. But I go down and get the manual and rig up the scaffold. The next morning, my brother said, he called me that night and said, why don't you go down and help me tomorrow? I said, all you have to do is just mash this button. Well, he put that scaffold on the 10th floor purposely. Mm. So we crawl out of winter. Now, here I am. I can't even walk. I can't bend over. But I finally crawl out a window on the 10th floor. I'm shaking so bad. You're right. And because I'm scared to death. Yeah, I mean, you just fell. Well, yeah. within two floors, Oof. my nerves come right out. I couldn't bend over, but I told him, I said, you just do the, you do the uh, bottoms, mm-hmm. I'll do the tops. So I, we started caulking. We, we caulked that whole 10-story drop that day. Mm. And so I called the boss that that night and told him, I said, I got to have me a job. He said, well, the only job I got, this is God looking out for me. He said, the only job I got is this VA hospital in Salisbury, North Carolina. You go up there and if you can drive 145 miles a day and drive up and, Goodness gracious. and run the crew. Yeah. So I'd get up, Sandra would tie my shoes, fix my lunch. I'd pick up the crew. We'd drive to Salisbury, North Carolina. I'd get the crew started, and I'd had a little wood chair. And so I'd sit down and get with the uh, engineer at the hospital. Mm-hmm. So I fell in love with historical restoration. Oh, okay. All right. And that, that makes sense. And that was, I started studying and learning how to be a historian mm. and to restore old buildings. Wow. And so. You would have never even been there if you hadn't fell. Eventually became the number one historian in the South. That's right. Goodness gracious. And wow. so that's how God does. Sometimes you get tragedy in your life, but you got to turn tragedy into mm. profit. That is so true. That is so true. And so that's how I got into the historical restoration business. And uh, then, uh, but just a few months later, we had the first union job in Georgia, mm. the trust company headquarters. This is how I got to Georgia. We had the first uh, union job. It was on Edgewood Avenue, the trust company headquarters. That's right. Okay. And so we had sent a guy down to do it, but it was all union. And so they'd already spent all the money. And so the boss called me. I was in Danville, Virginia, said, Monday morning, I want you in Atlanta. That's how they did back then. They didn't ask you. They just told you. They just said it. And, and if you so, weren't there, somebody else's job. Yeah. They said, come <laughs> on in. That I want you to be in Atlanta 8 o'clock Monday morning. Hmm. But then he tells me the whole story. We're out of money. We done spent all the money. We still got 26 floors to go. Oh, my goodness. And we ain't even got <clears> out of <throat> the ground yet. And so you got to go down there and get it done as cheap as you can. Get out of Georgia. Well, now we're back to that working for General Electric them three months. Mm. I learned what unions was about. <laughs> so he gave me the union book. I studied that over the weekend. I came to Georgia, finished the job, ended up selling enough extras and started selling jobs And uh, because I wasn't set in the motel and wait, 
once I'd get caught up, I'd go out and start setting little jobs and doing doing more work. Right. And uh, and and so I talked him into open office in Georgia. And so that's in sixty. That was in sixty eight. And so January the first, uh, Kenny was born on. Uh, December the 13th, January the 1st, we moved to Georgia. He wasn't in a month old. Mm. And we moved to Georgia and moved to Duluth. And uh, I opened the Holbrook Waterproofing Georgia office and and started with me and Sanders. Sanders was the secretary, and I was the general manager, worker, the killer, the everything. Yep. And so a year later, I had 50-some employees. Started off with a pickup truck and a ladder. And well, that was the way. <laughs> and, uh, and so then I decided that, well, I actually quit. And he talked me into coming back to work and gave me 13% or 17% of the company. Sold me 17% of Holbrook Waterproofing to Georgia. You were selling everything down here. He had to give you something. Yeah, well, the only difference, he forgot to mail me my check. See, that's a problem. That's that, a big problem that's right a there. That's a problem right there. <laughs> well, all these things was lessons that. Right. Uh, I should drop back and tell you about the, the I'd been working there three months, and he give bonuses every three months. Okay. And this was another lesson he taught me. We still do it to this day in Metro Waterproofing. And so he would give out bonuses every quarter. Uh-huh. So he just gave me a $100 bill, but I hadn't only been there three months. I hadn't even been there three months. Wow. And I had never had over a $5 bonus in a textile. They don't give you no right. more than a $5 bonus. $100 was a lot back in the oh, that 60s, was a lot of too. Money. Yeah, that's a lot of money. And so the next quarter come along, and we came in, and me and my brother lived on the same street. So he just handed us an envelope, and I stuck it in my shirt pocket. But mm-hmm. I felt it. It was thick. Mm-hmm. And so I felt it, and I said, God, be $1 bills. And so we stopped by the convenience store because we love we loved to drink a cold beer on the way home back then. Uh-huh. And so we got us a six-pack, and we said, well, let's – think I'll see how much money we got, how much bonus. So I opened it up, and I remember to this day it was $1,251. And I don't know how he came up with that amount, but <clears throat> I throwed that on the table. I told my wife, Sandra, I said, I found me a home. Yeah. That's what I'm going to do. And so to this day, we still give bonuses. That That's was great. lessons that he taught me. Mm. And so, but he forgot one thing. Mm-hmm. He forgot to mail me my check. Yep, he did. And uh, and the Clyde Strickland that was back in 1960-something wasn't going to take that. No, sir. We uh, <laughs> we decided uh, I had a $10,000. I could sign my name. I had a signature loan of $10,000. I uh, didn't know nothing about banking. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the day I owed the bank of Duluth uh, $2,700. So I had $3,500 in the bank, so I had to say, well, I'll just pay them off, mm-hmm. and then I'll borrow $10,000, and I'll start, I'll start my business. Well, I walked in the bank the next day, going to borrow $10,000. They said, well, you're starting a new business. You'll be broke in six months. We can't loan you no money, and oh. I didn't give them all my money. Oh, no. And so uh, I went, and luckily God had looked after me, and I had equity in my house. Mm. We had moved to Lawrenceville because 
they had a grocery store over there, and we helped start the first Episcopal Church in Gwinnett County. Okay, yeah. And that was uh, St. Edward's in Lawrenceville. Okay. And so we we had moved to Lawrenceville, and we had equity in our house. And uh, so we put up our house and borrowed $6,000, and we started Metro Waterproofing with a $6,000 second mortgage, a $100 ladder, and a $1,400 pickup truck. <laughs> And most people don't know this, and but so Metro Waterproofing is actually incorporated in Gwinnett County. Well, they, I did not know that. Yeah. And it's a Gwinnett County uh, corporation. Oh, wow. Well, that's that's an amazing thing, really. So we started uh, in, our, in a room in our house, mm-hmm. and uh, we had a $98 typewriter and a $27 desk. We still got that desk. And Do you? And that's how we started Metro Waterproofing. We had a $98 typewriter mm. and a $27 dress, a uh, mm. desk. And we went out the first month. I had eight employees the first month. And so we owed uh, $14,000 in material bills. And we couldn't even pay the employees. And I drove to Tacoa and picked up a check uh, from Felt Brothers Contracting. That was the first job I ever did was in Decoa, Georgia. Uh-huh. Georgia. And I picked up the check, and we've never missed a payroll. And uh, next January the 13th, to be 50 years. And you got a company called Metro Waterproofing now. And so that was the late 60s into the, into the 70s. And, of course, Atlanta and the metro area and even Gwinnett started booming. I mean, they were building left and right. That was in 1972, mm. uh, January the 13th. 13 is our lucky number. Oh, wow, okay. And so uh, both of our boys is born on Friday the 13th. Oh, really? And uh, we started, we moved on the 13th of January to Georgia, and we started our business on uh, January the 13th, 1972. Mm. And we the house we live in right now is our 13th house. Well, what do you know? Isn't that amazing? So people think 13 is bad, but we think 13 is is pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) And that is where we'll end it for today's podcast. Thanks for joining us. And please subscribe so you never miss an episode. Ain't it amazing what some people do? They can move mountains with love as their tool. Haystack full of needles There ain't nothing like people There ain't nothing like people The Gwinnett Podcast is brought to you by Gwinnett Magazine Recorded at Story Road Studios Produced by me, Nate McGill Hosted with David Greer And music by Levi Lowry To never miss an episode, make sure you hit subscribe Some wear badges and others white jackets And they put us back together again Preachers and teachers and professional reachers keep believing in us when we can't.